0: Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacks.com. Now on with the show. Alright, three two one let's jam hello and welcome everyone i'm Corey hofstein and this is flirting with models the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy Corey Hofstein is the co founder
1: and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com.
0: Doug Colkit is an ex-high-frequency trader, ex mev bot searcher, and founder of the decentralized exchange Crocswap. In this episode, we talk about all three. We begin with high-frequency trading, where Doug walks us through the differences between maker and taker strategies, why Q position is so critical for makers, and why volatility is a high-frequency trader's best friend. We then discuss Ethereum-based MEV strategies, Doug explains what MEV is, how the architecture of the Ethereum blockchain allows it to exist, and the high-level topology of the different types of MEV strategies that exist. He also explains how the game theory behind MEV changed dramatically with the launch of Flashbots. Finally, we talk about his new decentralized exchange, Crocswap, and its primary innovations, including dynamic fee levels, identification of toxic flow, and the vaults that enable KYC. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Doug Colkin. Doug, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here. There's a bit of a growing theme this season, which is talking about high frequency trading. So I'm super excited to have you on as an expert guest to walk me through it. So welcome.
1: Super excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Why don't we start with your background? I'm really excited to get into the things that you're working on today, and you just clued me in. You've got a big launch coming up that I want to get to at the end of the episode, but let's start at the beginning, walk our way towards how you got to where you are today.
1: Started my career in the late 2000s. After school, went to work for a company called Citadel at the time, who was more known in the hedge fund space when high frequency was still emerging. Started there. Initially was in a rotational program, got into the high-frequency desk, thought it was really interesting. The stuff they were doing, worked there for a few years as a quant researcher, so a combination of working on the signals. They're working on various strategies. Spent most of my time there on their Asia-Pacific equities strategy, so there's a lot of interesting markets. Got to learn a lot. Left it all in the early 2010s, and then I kind of decided to go out and see if I could build a whole high-frequency system from scratch. So a bit of an audacious goal at the time. Still kind of kid in my 20s, but decided to build a high-frequency trading strategy on the CME, focused on taking liquidity instead of market-making, driven by high-frequency alphas. Did that for a few years. That got more competitive by the mid-2010s. So did some other quant strats for a bit, but transitioned over to uh, kind of randomly market-making equities in Turkey for a bit this was right after their exchange went electronic so I figured it was kind of a growing market at the time and a gold rush there when people were moving in and kind of their systems were getting modernized so I did that for a few years and then kind of randomly in 2020 read some cool stuff about this concept of mev had never really done much in crypto before but thought it was just super interesting did it kind of as a side project but quickly kind of grew to take over so it was a mev searcher for a bit and then decided Rather than trading, I kind of wanted to build kind of these new decentralized exchanges and protocols and not just trade on them. And the space was still growing, a lot of innovation. So uh, then I started my project CrocSwap in 2021 and have been working on it since. And yeah, we should be launching this
0: upcoming week. Well, congratulations. I should point out that by the time this episode gets released, it will already have been released. We're recording this in early April, and this season won't come out until May. So in our time machine, congratulations on the launch. (laughs) Thank you. Lots of fun stuff to unpack there. Let's start at the beginning. Post Citadel, when you initially struck out on your own, you decided to trade equity futures rather than equities, which is what you had been doing at Citadel. Curious as to what the rationale behind the change was, and... Whether you can comment on similarities or differences in trading the two different, seemingly very highly related asset classes.
1: The biggest reason that focused on futures instead of equities was, well, really, I guess two things, but they're pretty closely related. So, with at least equities in the US, there are multiple venues. They have NASDAQ, NYSE, BATS, Direct Edge, kind of all these different venues. And that's not even getting into the dark venues, the off-exchange stuff, the internalizers, everything there. So if you want to really have a decent operation in equities, the infrastructure footprint you have to have from day one is pretty expensive, right? Because you have to be co-located at all these venues, you have to have market data, agreements with all these venues, direct market access everywhere, as well as being able to send data, price discoveries happening at different venues. So you have to be able to send data quickly, which also gets expensive sending from one data center. You know, they're kind of managing all that. Plus, their regulatory issues with, like, the markets have to stay aligned. You have to be aware of it. MBBL. Futures is a lot simpler because almost anywhere the futures trade, they just trade at one venue, right? I can't go take a long position at the CME. And then even if there's a similar future somewhere else, I can't move it from the CME to the other venue. Like, I could buy Microsoft on NYSE and sell it on NASDAQ. So because futures only trade at one venue... It's just a lot easier. You only have to be co-located in one space. So as a kind of a one-man show, the infrastructure was a lot feasible to get into position there. The second thing is mentioning kind of that dark flow, the internalized flow. So the challenge with equities is a lot of the non-toxic flow doesn't even hit the lit markets to begin with. So a lot of the game in equities is actually getting access to order flow upstream before it even gets to the market. So a bit of a barrier there compared to someone who just wants to trade on exchange.
0: In our pre-call, you said to me, quote, to trade high frequency, you need signals that change on a high frequency basis. This is one of those quotes that I would categorize as simultaneously being incredibly obvious and yet somehow both potentially profound and insightful at the same time. (laughs) What do you think this quote ultimately means for the types of signals that high frequency traders can use?
1: The issue is, if you really want a strategy that turns over quite a bit, that holds positions for short periods of time, the reality is, right, the signals you use, or whatever you're using, decide which direction to change, has to actually change frequently enough to match the cadence that you want to trade at. Even if you're trading on an hourly basis, there's a lot of information that affects the price of any asset that kind of moves really some hourly bit, right? News, social type stuff, not to mention like actual economic data, all that stuff. So, even once you go beyond the high-frequency realm, even to the intraday realm, things open up a bit. But in that high-frequency realm, if you're targeting, say, on the order of seconds, or maybe even up to a minute, there's just the number of things that actually change at that cadence is very limited. And really what it comes down to is the only things that are happening on a stock from a future or whatever on a second basis is the trading that's going on in the market itself. So in that sense, when you're trading high frequency, it's really interesting. You don't really care about the asset itself. And that's why firms that are good in crypto high frequency or good in equities, good in futures, very easy to move over because all you care about is kind of this market microstructure that it tends to be pretty similar
0: from place to place. So volatility ended up drying up in the equity futures market post-GFC in that 2012-2013 period. I'd love for you to first comment on why that changed the nature of your ability to be profitable. But I know that was also the transition point for you to end up making markets in Turkish equities a couple of years later. It sort of gave you the catalyst to change what you were doing. So when I talk to high-frequency traders, there's this big line in the sand between making versus taking. So as we maybe transition a little bit from what you were doing with equity futures to what you were doing in Turkish equities, can you define what making versus taking is and how they differ from an alpha perspective. So hitting you with two questions. One, maybe you can just talk about that regime change and then two, high level. What is maker versus taker?
1: In terms of regime change, I think one reason it was easier to be kind of a smaller shopper, even even a one-man show in the early 2010s right after the GFC was because when volatility is really high, the dimensionality of the strategies you're running goes up a lot even just down to the level of the number of events that happen every one second on average was a lot higher in 2010 than it was in 2015. everyone's kind of building similar models right book pressure you might have order flow you might co movement of correlated instruments between different books you're not using exactly the same model everyone kind of has their own variation their own spin even just like the way you implement might be subtle details that change it so When things are very active, if you have a model that's slightly differentiated, but maybe not as good as one of the top players in the space, there's more room for that model to be able to extract marginal alpha at the price discovery. When markets get a lot more quiet, and particularly when volume goes down relative to how much high-frequency activity there is, things become a lot flatter in terms of how many different ways can you do the same thing. And in that respect, it's kind of like the apex creditors feed first and whatever's left over is a lot more likely to be toxic for you. So one misconception is people think in taking, you don't have to worry about toxicity at all. That's only something that makers have to worry about adverse selection. But even in taking, especially when you're competing for the same events and latency competitive things, there is adverse selection in the fact that if 10 other firms are trying to hit this alpha all at the same time, you're a lot less likely to get filled. If your model's wrong and you're really on the only one. So, even in taking, adverse selection is a problem, and is a lot more of a problem when volatility and volumes dry out, which kind of drives secondary or smaller players out of the market. I think is a big reason we saw some consolidation in the 2010s.
0: So, you end up moving to market making in Turkish equities. Again, I was hoping you could just draw a really clear, definitive definition around taking versus making. What does that mean for someone who's never operated in the high frequency space? How do they differ from each other?
1: Well, I mean, just take a step back. There's an order book. There's resting limit orders in the book. If I want to trade at any given time, there's a bid. There's an ask. I want to buy, pay the ask. I want to sell. I receive the bid. The bid's slightly lower than the ask, right? So the idea with taking is I'm going to trade right away. So I have some signal that I think is, number one, very quick time decay. I don't have time to wait to try to get filled. I need to fill this right away because I think it's only going to be here for a very fleeting period. And number two, it has to be big enough where crossing the spread, paying this transaction cost justifies it in terms of the signal. So taking looks a lot more like art from that perspective, right? I'm trying to fit signals. I'm trying to make sure my signals are accurate. It's not just enough that they're directionally right. I have to get my magnitudes right because I don't want to fire off trades and pay transaction costs when the expected value isn't high enough. So in the sense that actually monetizing and taking strategy is a lot simpler, right? I'm just... Trying to okay, check my signal, see if it's big enough. And yeah, I've managed my inventory trading that, but that's not super difficult to do. And the nice thing about high frequency is your sharp ratios are high enough that risk and like hedging isn't like a super big concern. Your main thing is I need to be plus EV on every trade I make. Making, right, is you're on the other side of that. You're someone who's resting in the limit order book. You're providing liquidity, you're putting your bids and ass out there, and by default, you win if somebody comes in and sells to you at the bid and you buy at the bid and you sell at the ask, you make money kind of by default, which seems simple. The problem is the default doesn't usually happen, right? Because people who are taking are kind of aggressive and not stupid. So with making the monetizing, how do you monetize? It gets a lot more complex. And then the other thing is with order books themselves, there's kind of all these complexities. Where do I place my orders? If the bid is at $44.02. $44.02. Should I improve it to $44.03? Can I improve it? Maybe the bid-ask spread is tight and I can't because the tick sizes are they're already one bit wide. Or maybe I join far away and wait for the price to move to me. And then there's this whole issue around key position. So each level has a first-in, first-out queue on most order books. If I'm at the front of that queue, I'm probably going to get filled with very high certainty. So therefore, there's less toxicity, less adverse selection. If I'm at the back of the queue, the fact that I'm getting filled probably means that someone has sent a very big market moving order, and that's very bad. So you still use alphas on making two and they still add a lot, but it's also right because alphas are kind of time decaying, they don't add as much. So there's all this complexity around how do you actually monetize a strategy, but maybe the alphas are less competitive.
0: I want to dive a little bit deeper into that Q position concept because as someone who trades much slower frequency alphas in my day-to-day job, That is not even something I've ever thought about. Before I get there, though, I'd really love to sort of like distill this maker versus taker. And you tell me if this is an overcomplicated way of explaining it. But my interpretation is almost taker is you are using alpha signals with the expectation that the market will continue to move in the direction of which you've crossed the spread to justify your cross of the spread versus maker, the Hope is that when you get filled, the market will either stay flat or revert so that you could offload your position and not have to cross the spread to unload. Is that, is that a fair way of sort of separating them?
1: I'd say that's definitely fair. The only caveat I would add to that is when you say like the market will continue to move. That kind of implies that there's kind of this continuation of a trend. It's actually, at least in my experience in high frequency, Whether you win or you lose is like really within the first hundred milliseconds of what happens. So if I'm taking, I want that level to crumble right away. And if that level doesn't move right away, like right after I hit it, if there's not someone behind me, usually it's a bad trade. And similar to making, if I get filled and that immediate fill doesn't push through the entire level, usually that's a good trade. So it's almost instantaneous instead of this continuous. I mean, obviously, the market trades continuously, but like these events kind of get decided very
0: quickly. Let's talk about those layers, because, again, unless someone's involved in the market microstructure and actual execution, they might not even be aware that these layers exist. So in talking to you, it sounds like Q position is almost sort of everything, a hugely important aspect of the alpha you generate on the market making side can you talk about what Q position is? What are layers in the order book? How do they operate? Why is Q position so critical? And why does it lead to this behavior where market makers have resting orders in the limit book? And then as they get closer and closer to the top, they cancel and pull them. What is that behavior all about? So I was hoping maybe you can just sort of shine some light on this market microstructure aspect.
1: Before even that one Thing that you should distinguish is there are really two types of books on different instruments. One is what would be called like a thick book. And that's basically where tick size is very large relative to how much people want to trade. So a lot of instruments are thick books, like the SP E mini is thick book. A lot of US equities are thick book. Definitely in Turkey, where prices were like five lira, at least the time was trading and ticks for one penny, things are a thick book. So when the tick size is very big, that's almost like a Price floor, right? If you think of the bid ask as like what's the price of liquidity, when tick size is set very large relative to where people naturally want to quote the bid ask, it's almost like a price floor on the price of liquidity. It becomes you can't compete in terms of setting a better price because usually the market is the bids at like forty four dollars and one cent, the asks at forty four dollars and two cents, and the minimum tick size increment is a penny. So there's kind of no way to improve on that. So market makers stop competing in terms of price just because they can't in those regimes. So with that being said, what happens is pretty much every possible price has some order set at it because there's just not enough granularity in the market and there are different levels. And what becomes really important is if I can make that bid-ask spread with like high certainty, it's very, very profitable because almost like the bid-ask spread is set artificially too high. But what determines whether you get filled or not? it's pretty much your position in the queue itself. There's a first in, first out system. So if I'm the first person to put in an order at $44 and one cent, that means the very first marketable trade that hits that price, I get filled. So there's this adverse selection aspect of, as I go further back in the queue, the likelihood that I get filled is much, much lower at any given time, which means that the fact if I get filled and the queue is really long, That probably means someone has like some market moving information or signal, or they're just working a big portfolio. And that probably means immediately after I get filled, the price is going to move against me and I've kind of lost money. First, I'm on the front of the queue, even like these tiny one lot orders, I'm getting filled against. So there's that aspect of the adverse selection. And then what you mentioned is why do people put orders further down, like further away, and why do they cancel so much? It's almost like the queue itself, you can kind of think of it as an option. So I put a position in the queue, if I don't get filled right away, I'll be okay. Maybe I'll move up the queue right as the things in front of me get filled. So it's kind of like I'm sitting there, I'm taking risks that I make get filled right away. It'd probably be a bad fill. But the longer I sit there, the more I move up the queue and the more profitable any fill will be in expectation. So when prices are far away and you have this thick book scenario, the probability the prices move like two ticks, in a very short period is pretty small just because ticks are large relative to volatility. So it's almost like a free option. So if the bid is $44.01 and I'm sitting at $44, it's like a free option. So I'm holding this Q position and hopefully it moves up and I get there. But if it does move up and I am at risk of getting filled and I don't like my Q position, which is probably 90% of the time, 95% of the time, this free option, I just held it, I'll cancel right away. I don't think this is positive anymore. Because there's really no cost to putting an order or canceling. Maybe there's some order to trade limit, like minimums, but they're usually pretty loose. People use this as a free option, basically, to hold queue position.
0: My naive interpretation here is that it comes down to maximizing your fills without the market rolling over you and your spread. So what I need you to do is clarify something for me. You hear this idea that market makers make the most money when volatility is high these super high volatility regimes, market makers are just printing PL. But that seems like exactly the type of environment or period where you could easily get run over in a single direction. So I was hoping you could reconcile that for me.
1: It's kind of a paradox, and it's definitely non-intuitive. But yeah, when volatility gets super high and markets start moving really fast, it's actually market makers can generate a lot of money. And The caveat being is they can probably only generate a lot of money if their infrastructure and their systems are good enough to keep up with the market. So like the class sample is like a flash crash, like things happen, market moves way too fast. A lot of people just haven't built their infrastructure to process data that fast, especially the non-high frequency traders, maybe people working like a VWAP order or something. Their view of the market is totally out to date. They're just kind of firing off random orders. They don't know what the price is. They think they're putting a limit order and the price has moved a lot. It's usually not the market moves straight in one direction, bounces around like crazy, just cause all this random order flow is coming. It's actually when markets get crazy like that, and you actually look at the order flow, the order flow is actually not very toxic, at least not as much as you'd think. It's much less toxic than you'd think because of that. It's actually not too bad. And you're right. Maybe the market moves through you, but it bounces around a lot and moves back. And in addition, right, a lot of market makers can't keep up. So they turn off. So you have less competition for Q position. And then the third aspect is like a lot of these books are thick books. They're always one tip wide. But oftentimes when you hit like these flash crash type events or very fast markets, spreads will widen out. Because again, that goes back to like market makers are just gone. People who are trying to maybe passively work in execution order are not in the order book. Like some people provide limit orders. If They're working a VWAP algo to get better execution. They're gone. They're wiped out. They can't keep up with the price moving. So actually, because of that, you might get a situation where a tick that's normally a penny wide almost all the time is like five, 10 cents or whatever wide. So even if you get hit more, you're making a lot more in that spread. So I'd say those are the main reasons. All
0: right. We're going to make a big jump now to the world of crypto. You mentioned after market making in Turkish equities, you started doing something called MEV which for I'm sure a bunch of listeners, they have no idea what MEV is. And this is something you spent a couple of years on. So to set the table for this conversation, can you first talk a little bit about the architecture of the Ethereum blockchain? And in that context, what is MEV? What does it stand for? How does it operate?
1: With Ethereum or really any blockchain, what happens is you have block. Producers, so some party that at any given time can produce the next block. A block contains a sequence of transactions. The block producer pretty much has total freedom to sort those transactions how they want. So Ethereum, for example, block times twelve seconds, so every twelve seconds you get a new block of transactions. Whoever is the validator in that period, or if it's a proof of work system, whoever the miner is that mines the block, can decide how to put those transactions inside that block. So that's how. The basic blockchain works. And that being said, there's interest rate. How do those transactions get to the validators or the block builders? And this has kind of varied nowadays, but traditionally, there's what's called a mempool. So it's a peer to peer network. It's basically like Bitcoin or like a file sharing network. It's a peer to peer network, of what's called a gossip network. I sign a transaction, I broadcast out to the network. Everyone's broadcasting these transactions back and forth, and then a validator can go out, look at the transactions that pay the highest gas. Gas is basically the transaction, the amount you're paying the validator or miner, put your transaction in the next flock. So it traditionally it looks like a validator goes out into this peer-to-peer network or this mempool, gets the transactions that pays high enough, puts them in the next block, and then spits out the next block. That's how it works. And the final wrinkle is on Ethereum or other smart contract chains, you have Dex or decentralized exchanges, which will probably get into that. But like the idea is, right, you can trade swap assets. So it's pretty interesting in terms of how does this differ from a traditional market. The biggest thing is a lot of transactions are visible to everybody else, all the players in the market before they actually go to the market. So that's different than if you're always at the CME or an exchange or NASDAQ. I send my order before anyone else can see my order. It's atomically put into the book. It interacts with whatever marketable liquidity is there. And so no one else can really see my order until it's either already resting in the book or just executed. In this, right, I can see the order. I can see, okay, Corey, you put out a swap. You want to buy ten Ethereum for $2,000 or whatever. So I know your order's there. I can have a good idea how it's going to interact with the DEX or decentralized exchange, and I can kind of predict what's going to happen. And therefore, I can hopefully be someone that can make money with me knowing ahead of time what's going to happen. There's different variations of how you can actually use that.
0: So the core idea of MEV then is basically looking at, the existing mempool of a block that hasn't been struck and then taking actions to try to profit on the standing transactions in the mempool.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'd say right, there are deep analogies to high frequency trading in the sense that high frequency traders in traditional markets are the people who are probably most skilled at this like very low granularity sequencing game or like how things go through and understanding what's going on at a very low granularity. And MEV searchers are similar not really moving tons of money or at least like in one direction, but trying to get in and making pennies off of how things are sequenced there at a low granularity level.
0: Just for the sake of completeness here, what does MEV stand for?
1: Oh, <laughs> MEV actually stands for Minor Extractable Value. This is ultimately the block builder, and this is before Ethereum was proof of stake, and those were miners who could build the block. Therefore, ultimately, it's the miners who can extract this value. Now, back in the day, it's actually the miners were pretty naive. So most of the value went to actually third party searchers who didn't really have any relation. And then the miners kind of got wise and got smarter about extracting more of the value on their side.
0: Can you classify maybe the primary MEV strategies and provide an example of how each of them works?
1: There's longer tail, there's more niche strategies, but of the big three, I'd say it's front running, back running and stat art. So I'll go through each one. So front running is probably something has the least analogy to high frequency trading because in most cases, like I said, orders are atomic, but the idea is I can see an order that's coming into a deck. So typically orders come in with a certain slippage. So Corey, you might sign a swap saying, I want to buy Ethereum. The price in the DEX is two thousand right now, but I will pay up to two thousand and fifty. And I can see that. I say, Hey, the price in the DEX is two thousand. I know you're gonna pay two thousand and fifty. I'm gonna go out. Buy up some Ethereum ahead of you, front run you. So I'm going to go to the DEX first. I'm going to buy up some Ethereum, I'm going to put your transaction after mine. So you pay too high of a price. You're paying 2050 instead of 2000. And then I'll go back and I'll sell you. So I go out, buy some, and then I basically sell to you. But I mean, really, you can move the pool. There's different mechanics around it. But that's the idea. I see your trade. I want to go out and trade ahead, basically, at the worst price. And then I profit from that. That's front running. The second major category is "quote unquote" back running, and that's basically where I see. Okay, you're going to go in. You're going to buy a one deck. So let's say there's Uniswap, and let's say like there's Sushi Swap over here, and they each are, have an Ethereum USDC pool. I know you're going to buy at Uniswap. You're not trading at Sushi Swap. You're going to move the price, and now there's going to be an arbitrage between the two. So I go in and I say I want to make sure right after your swap lands, the price is going to be dislocated. I want to be the very first transaction after your transaction because you push the price at Uniswap up to high. So I'm not going to buy it Sushi swap where it's cheap, sell the Uniswap where it's expensive and kind of lock in this quote unquote atomic arbitrage profit. And what's pretty interesting there is compared to TradFi, where even if I'm doing kind of a similar thing between like Nisey and NASDAQ, that trade isn't guaranteed, right? Because I might get filled at NASDAQ, but not get filled at Nisey. With this, because it's a smart contract chain, I can put in a transaction. I can run all these things, and then I can check at the end. Let's make sure this actually went through. And if I didn't, I'll just revert my transaction, and it won't go through. So it's really interesting. There's actually like a purely risk-free way to make money. And you can even stack on top of that. You can do a flash loan, where I borrow a bunch of money at the beginning of the transaction. I don't need any collateral because it will abort the transaction if I don't pay it back. And then I pay it back the end. So technically, this is like really the only way. Really almost anywhere where you can make money trading without any risk or without any capital, besides maybe like the gas cost to actually pay the transaction. But that's kind of like just a really fascinating aspect of it. And then the third strategy is like Stattard, and That might look more like traditional stat art in a market where maybe the catalyst isn't actually what's going on in the blockchain. The catalyst is something going on somewhere else, particularly centralized exchanges move a lot faster than the blockchain. Ethereum only moves every 12 seconds. So if the price of Ethereum goes up at Binance, I know probably the price of Ethereum on the Uniswap pool is too cheap, or at least it's too cheap if I'm the first transaction in the next block. I won't hit that stale price and I get filled. And there, pure arbitrage isn't necessarily possible because I would have to move it from the blockchain to Binance, which obviously you can't do in one transaction. But maybe I know I can make money in expectation. So I know if I consistently buy Ether when it's cheap at Uniswap, and then sell it when it's expensive, I'll make money in expectation over time, probably with a very high sharp ratio. So those are, I'd say, the three core strategies. And you can obviously do variations on them, but those would be the main things that searchers would look for.
0: At the risk of sort of beating a dead horse here, miners during the proof of work era could do this because they could inject any sort of transaction they want into the block that they are compiling. Why is it possible for MEV searchers to do this? Why can you suddenly inject your transaction before or after mine, create some sort of sandwich attack? Is this not just a FIFO model that the first transactions in are the first executed? How does the Ethereum blockchain architecture actually enable these types of strategies?
1: So the interesting thing is, how the block is constructed, and where transactions go, that's not part of the protocol itself. So any miner or validator is free to do whatever they want and put whatever transactions they want. So before MEV was a really big deal, what miners would do is something pretty simple. They'd say, let me look at all the transactions out in the mempool, who's paying the highest gas price, and then if it's tied, whose transaction did I see first? And miners weren't really aware of MEVs. They were just kind of running this naive algorithm. Is kind of just part of the standard Ethereum client software. But if there's no map, this is a greedy algorithm and it pretty much works correctly and maximizes your profits as a miner. So before miners were really aware of this, I could exploit the fact that miners just use this kind of naive algorithm. And I could say, okay, I know a miner is always going to take the transaction with the highest gas fee. And therefore, I see for want and front end you. your swap is set to 100 Gwei, Guay. So GUE is like a gas price unit you set your gas price to 100 gui, I'm going to set my transaction to 101 gui. And then if a miner sees my transaction, sees your transaction, they're just naively going to put mine first in the block because they just sort transactions, highest gas to lowest gas to kind of incentivize people to pay the most gas. Another searcher might come in though, now they see my transaction and they might say, oh, Doug has bid 101, but I know this is a very profitable opportunity. So I'm happy to bid 200 gas." I'll pay even more gas and I'll still make money even after what I pay for gas because I know the front running opportunity is very profitable. Then they have to broadcast that to the mempool because that's how they get the miners. But that means now I can see it and I try to come in and auction over them. I'll pay 300 and we go back and forth. It's almost like a latency war in this peer-to-peer network where I'm trying to see transactions as fast as possible because if we're both competing for the same opportunities and the miners are kind of doing this naive behavior and there's other searchers, I need to see their transactions so I can bid as fast as possible and get in line there without just bidding a crazy amount of gas and giving up all my profits. So that was kind of how the game worked in 2020. And then flash slots came along and kind of changed
0: the whole game. We'll get to that in a minute. It strikes me, though, that like traditional high-frequency trading, understanding toxic flow is really important here because mm-hmm. let's say I naively have a swap. You try to front-run me and another searcher then is able to front-run you as well, the opportunity for them to profit is going to be on front-running me and front-running you. But if you then pull your transaction, the amount of gas fee that they were willing to pay to front-run both of us is maybe very different than just front-running me. And so this understanding of who's a toxic transaction in the Ethereum mempool seems very parallel to the idea of understanding toxic Low and high frequency trading. I was wondering if you could just comment on that.
1: Yeah, directionally, that's right. I'd say the one wrinkle there is usually, even if you're front running, you're not going to get front run because you set your slippage very tight. And going back, right, it's a smart contract chain. So I can say if someone has already moved the price, just got there before me, just abort the whole transaction. I don't want to trade. But like you said, you do pay a lot of gas, and especially in gas floors, the price of gas you can get paid usually starts scaling up to the total size of the profit opportunity. So there is a lot of toxic flow in the sense of you have to think about where am I in this pecking order? Am I the best searcher out there? And maybe if I am, I'm just going to go after every opportunity. Or maybe there are searchers I know who are better than me, but only do certain types of transactions. Maybe they don't deal with certain types of tokens. There's a whole issue around like quote unquote salmonella tokens, which are like tokens that look like you can front run them, but actually in the token itself, it locks the liquidity pool. So they're basically a way to like take money away from searchers there's this whole risk curve and you have to be aware of where you're at on it because like you said, you don't want to get in a gas war with someone who you know is going to be true you because you're going to end up paying a lot of money for gas without actually having any profit to show from it. And then you'll lose money over time. So it's kind of funny. Like one thing I would use is how many leading zeros of a given searcher had. So if you ever see like a theory address, zero X, zero, 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 or whatever, Usually the fact that like somebody went through the hassle and like the cost to actually mine a bunch of zeros is an indicator that they're pretty technically sophisticated. So if I saw someone else competing with me who had 10 zeros or something as leading digits, that'd actually be a good heuristic. I don't want to get an award
0: with this person. Sort of like, ironically, it's like a vanity negative alpha signal. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly.
0: So you mentioned Flashbots really quickly. You mentioned the way MEV worked in 2020. Flashbots came on the scene and dramatically changed the game. The game primarily probably being the game theory that's being played among MEV searchers. Can you explain what Flashbots is and why the whole game theory of the way MEV was played changed pretty much overnight?
1: Yeah. So before Flashbots, there was actually... Just to preface that, there was this very brief period, like kind of what you said, maybe miners started saying, well, we should just do MEV direct ourselves. Because no matter what the third party searchers do, we have ultimate control over the block. So maybe we should run our own MEV trading strategies just internally, put them in the block. and We know we'll always win if we control the block. That happened very briefly where this mining pool tried to really control like 20% of the hash rate or something. They tried to run their own math strategy and say, well, we should be getting some of this. So they had their own desk. They're risking their own capital, basically. And the first week, they lost something on the order of like a million dollars in like a salmonella attack, like a token that was like a fake token just designed to like make them think they were front running, but take all the money they spent. Then at that point, the miners were like, well, this is not worth it. There's still a lot of risks, even if it seems like a good deal. We shouldn't be involved with this directly. So the Flashbots came around, and Flashbots basically set up this infrastructure. Parallel to the normal mempool, like we discussed. And what Flashbots would do is they went to all the mining pools and they got them to agree okay, connect to our infrastructure. People are going to send private transactions directly to you. So now it's different. I can send a transaction to Flashbots. No one else can see it. I'll send a private transaction. I'll set the price I want. And then the mining pool agrees that if it's a Flashbots transaction, it always goes at the top of the block. So if you're trying to be a MEV searcher and going through the mempool, this breaks your game. Because someone else who's using Flashbots will always get the top of the block no matter what you do. So this sucks for mempool-type searchers. And then Flashbots has this infrastructure where they take away the mempool. Now transactions are sent privately directly to the miners themselves. What ended up happening is, like you said, that changes the game theory. Because before was this auction where I could see your bid, you could see my bid, and we could try to respond to each other's bids as soon as possible. You're not incentivized to pay anything more than accept slightly more than your opponents pay, which means usually you don't go all the way up to like the maximum gas value that you would pay. So therefore, the miners don't end up extracting most of the value. Now with flashbots, it's a blind auction. So if it's a blind auction, I don't know what you're going to pay. And you don't know what I'm going to pay. But we each know like this opportunity is worth. 10,000 gas or whatever. So the incentive is pretty much we're going to bid as close as possible to 10,000 gas because otherwise you're just not going to win. Someone else is just going to do that strategy, push it as close to the economic breakeven point. It drastically changed the value accrual from searchers were making a ton of money before because they were keeping most of the money. So now the miners, win. most of the value being generated, I think it was like 90% or something pretty quickly with it.
0: At first glance, MEV seems like a very different high-frequency game than, say, market-making on Turkish equities. Uh, At the very least, you're operating like magnitudes of orders slower on clock time. I'm curious more about what the commonalities are, either in the technology stack you need to run, the types of alphas that you're ultimately looking for, or even the game theory that occurs in these types of pursuits.
1: I'd say... Even though the block times are longer, at least this mempool type game, the times you're responding are actually faster because you're playing this game in the mempool itself and you're really only constrained by like global network times. Those are still orders of magnitude slower, milliseconds instead of microseconds, but you're still trying to optimize this, like, I want to respond as quick as possible, at least in that regime. It is different though, because there's not one exchange. It's not one server connected to an exchange. It's this global network. So you also play games where, okay, I'll try to set up a bunch of different peers and a bunch of different geolocations so I can always kind of respond first no matter where a message originates from. So it is like networking games, but maybe not exactly the same type of networking games. And then, like you said, from a strategy perspective, there's definitely some aspect of like toxic flow, game theory type stuff. The biggest difference though is in high frequency trading, you're really managing risk. There's no way to do high-frequency trading without having some inventory on it sometime. If I'm market-making, I'm going to have fills, be long or short. I have to manage those positions. I have to get in and out of it. Hopefully, I do it well. My sharp ratio is high enough that it doesn't really matter that much, but I still have to manage it. I still have to take risk and hold risk and hold inventory. A lot of these MEV-type games, you're in and out in a single block or even a single transaction. So you're not managing inventory, which is a whole different... Now, that being said, the StatArb type world, you might be managing inventory. And there have been really a few MEV players who have done really well at StatArb. And a lot of MEV players who have struggled to transition over to StatArb. And the interesting thing about StatArb is, right, you might only do one leg of a transaction, hold the inventory instead of getting in and out, paying the swap fees both ways, because that reduces what your costs are. And therefore, you can bid on more opportunities, you can bid more, all kinds of stuff. So I think the big thing was a lot of people who got into MEV, like really understood blockchains well, but didn't have this traditional finance background of, I know how to manage a portfolio. Even if it's a high-frequency portfolio, it's turning up, I know how to manage a portfolio, I know how to manage risk and to manage inventory. port. And the MEV players that got really good at that and were able to do that, I think have really taken a lot of market share from like the more traditional atomic MEV sectors.
0: Philosophically, do you think MEV is a benefit or a drain on the Ethereum ecosystem? For example, does it provide useful price discovery or is it purely creating congestion and it's predatory?
1: Front running, I think, is pretty much a straight negative. It's bad user experience. People are getting worse fills. It doesn't provide any price discovery because the price at the end is the same. Front running is a straight negative. It's a fun game, but (laughs) it doesn't really help the ecosystem at all. Back running and like atomic arbitrage, I think, kind of helps the ecosystem because you're keeping prices in line between different venues. And then similar statar probably helps the ecosystem, right? I want the Uniswap pool not to deviate too much from the Binance pool, but at the end of the day, I think the strategies themselves are very simple. Most of the complexity is just winning the auctions or getting to the top of the block. And like if you look at the amount of money that goes from ultimately liquidity providers in a Uniswap pool to this types of traders it's really way out of line with like how complex it is to say what's the price of Binance. Okay, the price of Binance is fifty basis points higher than it was ten seconds ago. I should move the Uniswap. So that's like a pretty simple trade. Probably the Mev players are getting way overpaid. Ultimately, possible would be providers. Now, I will say though, the one good thing though is it definitely pumps the value accrual to Ethereum because the Mev players ultimately. The gas and pay fees to the validators, and that increases the returns to staking, right? And so, therefore, it burns more ETH and all that stuff. So, if you're an ETH holder, technically. If you're just holding ETH, you benefit from it.
0: It's an interesting segue from there. Not to say that MEV ultimately was the catalyst for you wanting to launch CrocSwap, but some of the things you're talking about here, the inefficiencies in the way that things like the Uniswap pool is designed for liquidity providers, ultimately create an opportunity for MEV, and it's something you're trying to address with Crocswap. So let's start with first, what is a decentralized exchange? Maybe talk a little bit how they've evolved over time, and then we'll take that into the core problem that you're trying to solve with Crocswap.
1: So a decentralized exchange is just anywhere you can swap one crypto asset or another. I guess you have NFT exchanges too, but we'll just talk about tokens, fungible tokens. So I have USDC and I want to use that to buy some Ethereum because I belong long Ethereum or vice versa. I want to sell Ethereum so it's, it's a single place on the blockchain, a uh, smart contract that operates autonomously. so there's no venue you don't have to deposit your money at FTX and hope that FTX has your money at the end of the day it's still your key, still your crypto you go, trade it, so you do a transaction, tokens go out of your wallet tokens come back to your wallet at the end of the day so it's very convenient in the sense that if I'm already holding assets on the blockchain, I just have to send a transaction through Metamask or whatever my wallet is. And now I have to the open exchange. I don't have to deposit. I don't have to hope that FTX still has my money or anything like that. That's the purpose of it. Now, the question is, right, how do you actually do that on the blockchain itself? Computational environment, way, way, way more limited than what NASDAQ can do on like a big server. So the problem is, at least in Ethereum or Ethereum-like blockchains, order books don't really work. They're just not efficient. If you wanted to do one, the gas costs would get very high, very quick. And there's all kinds of other practical issues. So order books don't work. So most or almost all decentralized exchanges are what's called an automated market maker. And it's a pretty ingenious design. At its core, it's pretty simple. There's a pool of liquidity providers. They put in 50% of one Asset and 50% of the other asset. And then anyone who wants to swap goes, deposits some assets on one side and then is allowed to take out assets on the other. And every swap slightly moves the price. And the pool is always trying to stay balanced 50 50. So that's how the mechanics work. The math is actually pretty simple. There are variations to it, notably like concentrated liquidity, where you can provide liquidity over a given price range and which is more capital efficient. Probably Ethereum is not going to wick down to $10 in the next. 10 minutes, so it's kind of inefficient to be depositing tokens so someone can go trade Ethereum down to $10, or it's not going to wake up to a million. So, right, you can do concentrated liquidity, but the core idea is still simple, right? You just have a pool of liquidity providers who are getting paid swap fees to always kind of be on the other side of these swaps, and hopefully the swap fees that they're getting paid might be, say, 0.3% or whatever depends on the pool. The swap fees that they're getting paid hopefully compensates them for being on the other side of which way people want to trade. So the biggest difference between that and an order book is in order book, everyone's competing to provide liquidity, which creates a very PVP dynamic, like talk about all the Q stuff, all those other things. Some liquidity providers make way more money than other liquidity providers in order book. In an AMM, everyone who's providing liquidity is basically in it together. So it's more cooperative form of providing
0: liquidity. One of the weirdest things about decentralized exchanges is this concept of providing liquidity at a given fee tier. Can you explain how that works, why it's a potential problem for the long-term setup of decentralized exchanges and how your proposed model at CrocSwap works?
1: The classic way that it works is each individual pool has a preset fee tier. That fee tier is defined when the pools is created. So traditionally, the Uniswap pools have been 0.3%. Meaning if I trade 100 USDC, I'm going to pay 30 cents to the pool. That's the traditional model. Uniswap v 3 now has different fee tiers. And the way that works is each fee tier is technically a totally separate pool. So there's liquidity providers who are providing at 0.05%. Liquidity providers who are providing at 0.3%. And there's a pool at 1%. Which typically means like most of the time, people are going to route to the pool with the lowest fee tier until the price gets out of line enough to justify trading at the higher fee tier. And that's how it works. So the fee tiers are just preset. And as a user, your challenge is actually selecting the right fee tier. And it's actually pretty difficult. What is the right level of compensation I should be getting for any given token pair? And typically, like what you see is at least for volatile, like outside stable pairs, but like volatile pairs like USDC, 0.05% is way too low. The liquidity providers in those pools are not being adequately compensated. But a lot of people just end up using it because it's there, reflected, it's kind of difficult to figure out. The system's pretty opaque. The system's not responsive to markets. A pool's defined. Technically, people can move liquidity between tiers depending on the conditions. In reality, 95% don't. If I'm providing liquidity in an AMM, I just want to earn yield on it. I don't want to have to monitor it 24-7. And then it creates a PVP dynamic. So if a lot of people are providing a 0.05% and I'm providing a 0.3%, now we're competing with each other. So I think that kind of breaks one of the important models around AMMs where increased PVP elements would mean that the best trading firms are going to win, which means that it's not going to be profitable to make a decent return as an ordinary person providing capital and on and on. So those are the biggest problems. And yeah, just basically, it doesn't change its It doesn't respond to market conditions, who knows if 0.3% is right or not, and it's probably the right level isn't. Even the same from period to period or depending on who's sending the orders. Certain order flow is a lot more toxic than others. So high-frequency traders in order book have all these tools to kind of making sure that they're getting paid adequately for liquidity they're providing. They're widening their spreads when markets are more volatile and narrow when it's less volatile. They'll try to profile liquidity at certain times when they think it's toxic or less toxic and they even go out to Robinhood and say, I know your flow is non-toxic, send it to me. I'll charge you less than what you pay at NASDAQ. So basically the idea, what we're trying to focus on is how can we bring better segmentation of order flow and time and using a dynamic fee model to see if we can fix some of the broken economics.
0: Yeah. Let's dive into that because it's one of the most interesting ideas to me, this notion of different fees based upon where the order flow is coming from charging a higher fee for toxic flow. For example, first, Toxic flow is a phrase we've used a couple times. Maybe you can define it just for folks who haven't come across that phrase before, and then maybe you can give some practical examples of how charging a different fee would work in practice with Croc Swap as it relates to sources on the Ethereum blockchain.
1: Toxic flow is basically just order flow that you don't want to be on the other side of. So if you have the choice to be a counterparty to all the trades. That your grandmother is doing to rebalance her 401k, where you have the choice to be the counterparty to all the trades that Citadel wants to execute. You'd obviously want to be a counterparty to your grandmother instead of to Citadel. So, certain participants in the market, the fact that they're trading carries a lot more information than other participants. And if I'm going to be a counterparty to them, which a liquidity provider or market maker is, I don't need to get paid as much for somebody who is not necessarily a toxic counterparty i'm willing to charge them less for liquidity so with that core idea what you can see is dive into the data we've done a fair bit of this is across traders in uniswap at least like on a five minute basis how predictive is their trade over where the price is going to go in the next five minutes almost everyone in uniswap is non-toxic 99 of people even like larger funds whales and stuff they're not moving the price There's a very small percent of traders, mostly MEV bots, who are extremely toxic. Almost every trade they make on Uniswap is bad for the liquidity providers. They're losing from that, which most of what these traders are doing are just arbitraging the price relative to Binance or wherever somewhere else price discovery is occurring. So our core idea is if someone sends an order and there's some credible signal that the order is non-toxic we can charge that order less than if somebody sends an order and there's really no credible signal. We don't really have anything. So the most obvious example is if you ever use MetaMask, you can swap tokens inside MetaMask. They have a little swap button, which is very convenient, but they charge something like a 0.8% fee or something on top of that. Sharp Trader is never, ever going to send their order flow through the MetaMask swap the router. So the fact that order flow is coming from there is like almost certain that it's non-toxic and you can charge less almost down to zero and still be profitable in expectation for liquidity providers. Another example might be if someone's willing to send a swap and they're willing to wait 30 seconds until their swap's executed, they're probably not toxic because it's usually these fast arbitrages. So you can charge them less. Say if you send a swap, you let us hold it for 30 seconds, we can charge you a lot less. You can even go to the MEV traders themselves and you can start profiling by address. So you can say, hey, like, I don't need to know exactly what's going on here. I just know consistently over the past 30 days, whatever. All the order flow that originated from this router or this address, it hasn't been toxic at all. And it's very easy to look at. We can look at the aggregate numbers. Any individual trade's hard to judge, but once you aggregate numbers to a large enough degree, you can be pretty certain. So that's ultimately what our model is. Well, two things. One is we're looking at market conditions themselves. When markets are more volatile, liquidity providers should be getting paid for liquidity because liquidity is scarce. Charge more for liquidity when demand is high and supply is low. So that's a time-based model. And the other is an order flows based model and say, there are different sources that are originating order flow. We're going to give them a reputation over time and people with better reputations can pay less swap fees. And then you become incentivized. I want to make sure my reputation's good because. That allows me to trade cheaper. So the game theory kind of works out for that. And then there's going to be some toxic flow. You have to make markets efficient. But if everyone else is kind of going in through these other channels, you can start charging the toxic flow more and more until the value accruals going to liquidity providers instead of the med searchers or the validators or flash flashflops or, or anything else.
0: I know one of the other major innovations that you're working on with Crocswap is the idea of vaults helping solve potentially one of the big issues with decentralized exchanges, which is KYC problems. Something that if we want institutional players to take DeFi seriously, this is a problem that needs to be solved. I'd love for you to sort of talk about your proposed solution here and what else these vaults will enable.
1: Yeah, exactly like you said, there's a lot of players out there who will do maybe a ton of volume on centralized exchanges, and they might not do really do nothing on chain because the rules are ambiguous. But depending on if you're fairly conservative from a compliance standpoint, technically, when you interact with a liquidity pool, by some interpretation, you're the counterparty to every single person providing liquidity in that liquidity pool. So obviously, if anyone from any address can go in and participate in a liquidity pool, if I'm a compliance maxi, I might not necessarily want to interact with that liquidity pool, even if the fills are good. So our proposal for this is we have something called quote unquote permission pools. So we'll always run with permissionless pools. So anyone can participate in the pool. Permission pools are just a general purpose primitive. Basically what happens is they're same pool, same mechanics, but the ability to participate in that pool or what you can do in that pool or even the price you pay to participate in that pool or even the parameters of the pool. So like for example, where you can place concentrated liquidity. Other things like that. Those are outsourced to a general purpose Oracle. And that Oracle can be any smart contract. But for example, if you wanted a KYC only pool, one Oracle could be any address that interacts with this pool, or at least wants to provide liquidity in this pool. If an address wants to provide liquidity in this pool, I have to make sure that it's on this KYC whitelist and has some credibility or whatever. And then someone goes to swap against that pool, they know, hey, I know every liquidity provider in this pool is KYC'd. So therefore, I know that I'm in compliance. That's something really interesting you can do. And again, there's still the permissionless pools, so anyone can interact with those pools. And prices should stay fairly in line, especially when it's relatively easy to trade between the two. The other thing is with permission pools, you can do a lot of really interesting things. Probably some of your listeners know about the Olympus DAO and like protocol-owned liquidity, and that was big last year. But the idea is Olympus DAO, this protocol, basically owned 100% of the liquidity in their own pool. So yeah, it might make sense that the protocol itself would let people interact with the pool or pay different fees or maybe only be able to buy at certain times of day or buy if they were validated members of the community or they'd stick some other asset into it. So you can do a lot with the pools. Sky's the limit there.
0: Most people I know in the high-frequency trading space don't tend to hold longer-term views. I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but I get the impression from speaking with you and reading some of your tweets that you are actually reasonably bullish on Ethereum over the long run. I'd love to press you on what your thesis is.
1: Yes, you're right. I am bullish on Ethereum in the long term. My thesis is that Ethereum will become to the financial system what the internet was to the telecom system. What I mean by that is you know, back before the internet, you had all these telecom systems and interacting between one system to another was very haphazard, expensive, difficult. That's why like a long distance phone call would cost whatever $5 a minute or whatever crazy prices are, because you didn't have a common interoperability layer. And I think what Ethereum really is, it's it's a database that other databases can connect to. For example, I go get a mortgage, the mortgage person has to check my credit score. They have to check that I'm employed. They have to check that I have enough assets in my bank account. And that's all very hard for them to check because they don't know if I'm going to submit proof and that's up to date and everything else. So they're really just checking databases. Okay, you're employed. You're employed right now. They're checking, oh, you're employed. Your bank account says you have X amount of money to make this down payment. Your credit score is this, and it's not out of date. So instead of it being a four-week process, for example, it could be a 30-second process. You know, there's going to be corner cases, but in most cases, okay, check, 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 this all lines up. I can atomically confirm everything's aligned That you're not borrowing money and putting in your bank account and then I have to go check your credit score again to see if you have any debt outstanding. So I think it's just this common interoperability layer reduces so many frictions in any sort of transactional system, but particularly finance. I don't see how that doesn't become everything just built on top of that. Just the same way that if I have a network or anything, I just connect to the internet by default.
0: Last question for you. Longtime listeners of my podcast know that I change my cover art every season, much against the suggestions of my marketing friends. The inspiration this season is tarot cards. Just for a bit of fun, I'm having every guest pick a tarot card that will inspire the design of their particular cover. You chose the Wheel of Fortune. I'd love to know why that card in particular spoke to you.
1: Yeah, I think the description was it represents a turning, turning of systems or a change in fortune or kind of a change in general. And I guess one thing that I'm really optimistic is, is that I think what we're building is kind of a new model, not just for crypto or decentralized exchanges, but hopefully for financial systems in general. I think order books are great, but I think AMMs ultimately, if you can get the economics to work. Really will make markets a lot more efficient and kind of democratize who can provide liquidity
0: and therefore make things more resilient. Well, Doug, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me and best of luck with CrocSwap.
1: Thank you.